It truly is a joyous privilege and an opportunity that we have this morning to assemble in the name of the God of heaven, to appreciate the magnificence of his blessings about us, and to understand that indeed God rules in the kingdoms of men, to quote Daniel 4.37. As I stand before you this morning, look over our audience, certainly our mind rushes to the number who have been announced as being sick some of whom are certainly in very dire need of our prayers, for their condition is, is certainly a serious one, and others for whom we can be thankful that improvements and their health is somewhat better than perhaps it has been. All of us, day by day, resting on the tranquility and peacefulness of God's offerings to us. As we open His Word this morning, it's again our hope, as we have been involved in a study of lessons in recent weeks, to give some thought to this matter of premillennialism. That which God teaches that is so wrong about so much of that and the simplicity of the Word of God as we approach the subject of the end of time. Quite often in these series we have spoken about the end of time and the question still rings in our ears, what will happen when time reaches its end? Does the Bible reveal what the sequence of events shall be? Does the Word of God give us detailed particulars about the structure of those events? And do they differ from what men have so often asserted? And so far through the series, our answer has been a resounding yes. In so many instances, the Word of God teaches something rather distinct and rather different from what men have so often been so quick to say. May I invite us to continue that series of lessons this morning as we look at yet another plank in the premillennial foundation and we shall find yet again before we are finished today that the plank is not only weak, it in fact has already crumbled. The Word of God shall not sustain that notion of a tribulation. Some introductory thinking to perhaps prompt us on our way this morning. Who is wise and he shall understand these things? Prudent and he shall know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the just shall walk in them, but the transgressor shall fall therein. The quotation from the ninth verse of Hosea 14. We each would desire, I'm sure, to be wise in the sight of God, and that wisdom requires that we be knowledgeable of, and those who are ready to apply those things contained in His Word. May we thus ask this morning in review, to remember where it is that we have journeyed and where it is to which we are ready this morning. We have asked about authority. When it comes to this subject of the end of time or any other that is touched by matters religious, the authority must rest here, or the, or the authority does not in fact rest anywhere but in the mind of man. In the next lesson we learn in this series what men have said, and we called it by that name, premillennialism we found a very detailed, sequential structure that men, in fact, paint grandly. But again, we found that it has been faulty and that it is not what the Bible teaches. In the third lesson, why did Christ come to this earth the first time? Was it to establish a physical kingdom? Was it to rule in royal splendor over some earthly domain? And we found the answer to be a resounding no. That was not the purpose for which he came. The Bible is clear from four perspectives, all of them pointing us to the spiritual character of men's sin. And he came to make a way for you and for me to be freed from sin and to one day be with him in heaven. He did not come to rule, to rule over an earthly kingdom. But in the fourth place, we ask, did the Jews reject Jesus in a surprise way? 
That is to say, did Christ know the Jews would reject him? Did God know it? So often the premillennialists tell us, no, they didn't. It was a shock to them, but we learn differently. The Old Testament had prophesied hundreds of years earlier exactly what would happen. And that rejection was foretold critically and with minute detail. The following lesson, we looked at the kingdom prophecies of the Old Testament. And we found that they, in fact, were not those that spoke about an earthly kingdom. They pointed to the establishment of a kingdom that would never be destroyed, over which the Christ would reign, and it was the church, as identified by Jesus himself in Matthew 16. Finally, the lesson last Lord's Day morning, the most recent one asked about the rapture. That rather interesting term to which our minds are so often encouraged to turn about this sudden and secret disappearance of a lot of people who are his saints and they just were whisked away by Christ in some kind of invisible appearance by him. We found the Bible doesn't teach that either. But that does bring us to today. For you notice at the very top of this, as you, I'm sorry, look near the bottom of it, the notion of premillennialism also teaches much about a tribulation period a period of rather enormous great tribulation supposed to last seven years. In fact, in light of that, I might ask that we shed some details on what we so often are told. And let me again preface this by saying, this is what we are told. I am not asserting that the Scriptures teach this. This is what premillennialism sets before you and before me. And let me be quick to say, if you consult various articles and books, and there are thousands of them, you can often find amazingly detailed and captivating discussions of some of this. As you well know, that Left Behind series by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins has focused in many ways on a great deal of this. And notice again how many copies of those books have been sold. But here's the sequence that things are in fact supposed to take place. I thought a picture might be in order as we start. Again, as someone has taken the opportunity to paint a picture of what he or she thought the rapture would be like, notice, you see cars crashing because their drivers are gone. You see, in fact, folks beginning to leave their confines and fly up, or those white things that you can see. And you notice the very top supposedly is the Christ appearing in this rapturous event. And there are multiplied millions around our world who are expecting something like this to happen. We learned last Lord's Day that it shall not be so. And furthermore, might we also understand as we look at not only that picture, but this one as well. Here again is some person's view of a millennial timeline. Notice at the far left is this church age, that age in which you and I are now privileged to live and to exist. But you'll notice with the first arrow that points upward, that supposedly is the rapture. And again, I assert the word supposedly. No people are seen rising upward with Christ at the top. But you'll notice following that on that arrow that points to the right is a period of seven years. It's called a tribulation period. The number seven was primarily derived from Daniel chapter 9, where the mention there is made of the number seven in that regard. But you'll notice that period of seven years comes before what we are told is the millennial reign. Our study this morning 
our study this morning will focus on that seven-year period. Does the Bible teach it, my friend? Does the Bible assert that there will be this seven-year interval, this period in which some of the following things, in fact, will take place? Let me take you back to this earlier slide. To give you some more details about what we often are told concerning that seven-year period, it will be nicely divided into two parts. The first period of some three and one-half years will be a period of rather noted Jewish ascendancy, meaning that the Jews will return to their beloved land of Israel, that land of Palestine, and during that time they will rebuild their temple. They will begin to put in place the various types of Old Testament worship, such as offering sacrifices of animals and the other things related to the temple of the Old Testament. Again, for the first three and a half years, that is supposed to take place. But following that is another three and a half year period that is recognized and called by most the Great Tribulation. It is a time supposedly of remarkable worldwide upheaval, remarkable catastrophes and crises that abound one after the other. I've listed just a few of them. Supposedly, due to the fact the saints are now gone, they've been raptured away, most of those left behind are ungodly, wicked folks full of iniquity who have little interest or concern for the things of God or His church. So much so, you can imagine the trouble and persecution that would directly come therefrom. Following that, the natural problems like earthquakes, tornadoes, disasters of other sorts are supposed to be multiplied. All of that comes to a culmination in a nuclear war. A nuclear holocaust, we are told. Following that, and in the midst of it, we find fires will engulf much of the earth. We are told these things. Let me again interject if I might. I am in no way saying the Bible teaches this. This is the sensational scheme that you and I are so often told. Following those fires, some one-third of the ocean in terms of its ecology will be consumed and destroyed. That's taken from Revelation 8, or so we're told. We also notice that one-third of the fresh water on earth will be destroyed. It will be consumed and polluted and contaminated. Furthermore, we learn that some one-third of the sunlight will be blocked, which will cause major changes in earth's climate. Following those matters, we quickly learn that just like the locusts in Revelation 9, demons will be released. The opportunity to wreak havoc upon this planet and the people who are still alive on it. Following the release of the demons, we find some one-third of the population of this world is supposed to be annihilated. That annihilation, in fact, will take place by an army consisting of 200 million fighting men. Interesting how that number they derive using various texts from both Old and New Testament alike. Finally, following these, we now learn that all of the water is supposed to be polluted. Thus, no more water to be had. There is scorching heat by virtue of the climate changes. And that scorching heat is only followed by a dramatic period of notable darkness. That darkness, of course, being accompanied by 100-pound hailstones, again taken from the book of Revelation. By this time, the three and a half years are reaching their end. There will be a concerted attack, we are told, on the city of Jerusalem, where, remember, the Jews have taken again up their residence. At this point, the Antichrist will appear in all his majesty, so we are told. Leading individuals and multiplied thousands will follow him. 
And inasmuch as all that is to take place, finally the Lord will appear one more time. He will in fact engage in warfare at the battle of Armageddon with the Antichrist and will thoroughly defeat him and thus commence his reign of 1,000 years in the city of Jerusalem. That's a sensational picture, isn't it? It is in fact described by so many and in such a detailed fashion I thought I would show you one more thing. One more picture you might find interesting. I myself find it a bit intriguing. This is a picture that someone has put together in minute, exacting detail listing, and I know the print is too small for you at this point, but if you could read that left to right, you would find every one of the bowls in Revelation is described minutely as what is supposed to happen, and then with a smaller print on the right, one by one, all the things we've just described are painted in exacting chronological order according to whoever devised this. Over at the far right, the thousand years is supposed to begin with Christ reigning on earth. I have a question for us. Is this true? In fact, is hardly any of it true? Over what time remains for us this morning, let us open the Word of God and ask some critical questions, some thinking about, are these things that we have been told? that the premillennial scheme sets forth relative to the tribulation. Is it correct? Does the Bible substantiate it? There are some three passages to which we'll turn our attention primarily this morning. And as we begin to give some thought to them, we shall look at them certainly with sufficient detail to answer the question before us today. There are three primary passages that folks will use to attempt to teach a tribulation. I have rarely, if ever, seen reference to any other than these three. And thus I would submit to you that if we could gain an appreciation of these three and ask and see whether they teach it, we shall have our answer today. For the simple fact is this. If the, if the tribulation cannot be found in these three passages, it is to be found nowhere in all of the book of God. The first one we shall visit is the Old Testament. In the 30th chapter of Jeremiah, we encounter a passage that reads so innocently. And I would invite you to turn to these passages and please read them with me if you would. Our, our concerted interest today is yet again to simply allow God to speak to us. It is not our interest to force our thinking into the Scriptures, but to allow God in His simplicity and in the overwhelming majesty of His Word to tell us the details. And let us look at Jeremiah 30 beginning in verse number 7. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. You'll notice in that passage is a reference to the time of Jacob's trouble. And there, in fact, we are told, is a clear reference for many to what we have termed today the tribulation, this time, this interval, this arena in which Jacob's trouble is described. One of the things we've often learned is the importance of making use of the context to help us place rightly that which is being discussed and set forth. This particular section in Jeremiah is a section that is filled with hope and with comfort it's a section of marvelous encouragement relative to the children of Israel, what they were then enduring and what yet lay in their future. 
In fact, I would ask you to notice with me in this very same chapter. It's not as if we need to go far distance from it, but notice verse 3 of this same chapter. Let us see what God is speaking about. For lo, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah, saith the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. We notice immediately there's reference to a captivity. Jeremiah, you see, was a notable prophet of God laboring starting about the year 626 or 627 B.C. And in the concourse of that labor, he worked and labored from then up until actually the captivity had already begun. Wasn't it Jeremiah who, perhaps one could say, was unfortunate enough to witness the destruction of his beloved city? the destruction of the temple. Jeremiah was there to see it. The book of Lamentations is a record of what he saw. It is thus the case, isn't it, that when one gives thought, here God is speaking about the fact, sure enough, there's captivity coming, but I'm going to bring you back. Don't you think the captivity will be the end of things? I haven't forsaken and forgotten you, but you need to be punished because of your sin, and I'm going to bring you back from the captivity. Notice also in verse number 10, Therefore fear thou not, O my servant Jacob, saith the Lord, neither be dismayed, O Israel, for lo, I will save thee from afar, and thy seed from the land of their captivity, and Jacob shall return, and shall be in rest, and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid. Again, this passage of comfort and encouragement was a reminder to the children of Israel that coming in their future, and it would not be long, they would be taken captive. They would enter into Babylonian captivity, and there they would remain for 70 years. Jeremiah 29.10 reminds us of that duration. But this verse in Jeremiah 30 verse 7 has nothing to do with what is told to be a tribulation. This is a reference to their coming captivity. It has nothing to speak to what yet we are told is a great tribulation in your day and mine. This took place centuries ago. Thus, it has been entirely and completely fulfilled relative to that point. If this text is supposed to provide a basis for a tribulation, it's not there. This was talking about then what they were to endure. I wonder as one gives some thought to that idea and the character of the tribulation that they were to endure in the difficulties of that time in captivity. I wonder what the next text may help us see. This one certainly hasn't evidenced a tribulation. Let's look at Daniel chapter 12. In the closing chapter of the book of Daniel, we encounter again another passage that is employed by so many to give reference to and basis for this matter of the tribulation. The book of Daniel is divided into two rather noteworthy parts. The first six chapters describe the difficulties that Daniel and his three friends, Shadnach, Meshach, and Abednego, were called upon to endure. The difficulties that brought them to this place and what they endured as individuals in the confines of Babylon. The last six chapters of this book, chapters 7 through 12, describe a series of visions that God delivered to Daniel and those visions portrayed what was going to take place down the streamline of, of history from that time forward all the way into the coming of the Christ. In that broad scope of history, 
we encounter in chapter 12, verse 1, the following statements. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. This particular part of Daniel is a section that deals with the consummation of what he's been discussing. It brings to a close, it brings to a head these issues he's been discussing. He first pointed out the great majesty relative to the Babylonian Empire, but he quickly noted it would pass away and another kingdom would appear. It would be that kingdom you and I would know as the Medes and the Persians. But it too would not stand perpetually. It also would finally wane away into history. It too would be replaced by a kingdom called the Grecian Kingdom. You and I know it as the empire of the Greeks. But also Daniel was quickly told that kingdom too shall not stand permanently. It too shall also give way to another and that last kingdom shall be the Romans. And isn't it interesting that we are told twice in this book in the days of those kings, those Roman kings, God will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Isn't it interesting then that in chapter 12 verse 1, we have a statement that begins again with these words. And at that time, if we could pinpoint the time, we would know clearly what it is that's being discussed. Is the time under discussion something that follows this great event we've portrayed today? And it's supposed to be this tribulation period of seven years sometime in the future? Or is this time referring to something far different than that? As you can see, perhaps in the reference at the bottom of the slide. At that time is a reference again to the Roman times. My friend, it's the Roman times under description. This is no reference to what has been portrayed in our study this morning as this great tribulation event in the future. The Roman times are under discussion. And might we note the Roman Empire fell now over 1,500 years ago. This apparently has happened a long time ago. What would be the great trouble and difficulty? As you can see near the bottom, in the days of the Roman kings, not only was the church established, but also Jerusalem was destroyed. And there was a tumultuous difficulty surrounding that, that again, Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24. It is that apparently to which Daniel referred. And it is that to which God pointed. This again has nothing to say about a tribulation period, as we're told in premillennialism. What have we learned so far this morning? Two passages often used, and neither of them form the basis for what we so often are told. Perhaps the other should be the one to which we now turn our attention. It's in the New Testament. In the 24th chapter of Matthew, in fact, in the very text that was read in our hearing earlier today by Brother Colonel, I would invite you to turn with me to the 24th chapter of Matthew and let us give some rather concerted attention to what is set forth in that chapter. It is certainly no overstatement to say that this is one of the most misunderstood chapters in the entirety of the book of God. Why, in fact, should we say it that way? I believe by the time we close our discussion, that description will be clear. Let's set the scene if we shall. 
First of all, this is not too far from the closing episodes of the life of our Lord in the flesh. Matthew, the 24th chapter. And yet, as you give some thought to it, the Lord left the confines of Jerusalem. He had participated in the events taking place in Jerusalem, and as he left in the direction eastward, crossing through the Kidron Valley, you'll notice that, as we learn in both Matthew and Mark's account, one of the disciples pointed something out to him. Seest thou all these great buildings? Certainly the temple was exquisite to see. It was impressive to look upon. And this particular disciple simply drew the Lord's attention to the greatness of that structure. However, Jesus quickly replied, and I would ask you to note the language carefully in verse 2 of Matthew 24. See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. In reply to that disciple's calling the Lord's attention to the greatness of that structure, Jesus said, I'm telling you, the day is coming that not one stone of that structure will now will be left upon another. No doubt that captured the attention of that disciple and others who may have heard the Lord say that. And we know of at least four others who heard it because Mark tells us in Mark 13, verses 2 and 3, four of the disciples, when the Lord had reached across the Kidron Valley and ascended the slopes of the Mount of Olives, they asked Jesus privately. The four were Peter, Andrew, James as well as John. What question did they ask Jesus? Here were their questions, Matthew 24, 3. Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? When they reached to that destination and had opportunity to do so, they privately asked Jesus, When shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Now notice, these things refers to what the Lord had just said. The destruction of that temple. When will this happen? But then the second question is, what shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the world? There were two specific questions I asked. Did the Lord answer them? Yes, He did. Did He answer them in order? Yes, He did. I would draw your attention then to Matthew 24, verses 34 and 35. In verse 34 we read, Verily I say unto you, This generation shall not pass, till all these things be fulfilled. He closed his answer to the first question in verse 35. He affirmed, did we not just read it? These things are going to happen in this generation. Thus he answered that first question, the part about the destruction of that temple and one stone not left upon another. Starting in verse 36, he proceeds to answer the second question. And that answer will take you all the way through the end of chapter 25. You might note with me as we give some thought to those ideas. Notice where verse 21 occurs. Verse 21 is that particular statement told to us to recognize and represent the tribulation. But notice that falls in that section of the chapter in which the Lord was answering the first question not the second. Thus, one more scripture has fallen to the floor as a basis for the tribulation. It simply isn't there. In fact, notice some of the other things in the very context of verse 21. And I've drawn your attention to these if you would consider it with me. 
Isn't it interesting? In verses 16 and 17, which occur right before verse 21, Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. Might we so interestingly ask the following questions? If truly this is a reference, as we are told, to those events near the end of time, what difference would it make to flee to the mountains or not? What difference would it make if you were on a mountaintop or in a valley? Or might we ask a different question? What difference would it make if you were pregnant or not? And yet the Lord asserted woe to them that be in that condition. Or might we ask yet a third question? What difference would the season of the year make? Why would it be bad for it to be wintertime? Do you see the point? The context doesn't have anything to do with the end of time. The Lord was discussing the destruction of Jerusalem when that temple was going to be destroyed. And he was giving information about indeed it would be a ferocious thing if, it, if you were to be pregnant because you wouldn't be able to run fast enough to evade the Roman armies. Or in fact, if one were to happen in the wintertime because then the difficulty of those streets overridden with mud would make escape all the more difficult, plus the coldness. Or what about the first one, fleeing to the mountains? You can now understand why the Lord encouraged flee to the mountains. When you see the Roman armies coming, you'd better flee out of this place. The Lord was not discussing any tribulation relative to the end of time. He was discussing the destruction of Jerusalem. And in that vein and in that light, might we notice again very carefully verse number 34. Jesus again said, This generation shall not pass. The generation then living were the ones to experience what was taking place in verse 21. In every instance this today, the three verses that we've discussed have not had anything to do with what is supposed to be a tribulation period at the end of time. May we use those then to close our lesson this morning and to do so with his final set of thoughts. You might notice in passing earlier today, we made reference to the fact supposedly in this tribulation period, one of the things that will occur is a return by the Jews to Jerusalem and a reestablishment of the Old Testament system of worship. The offering of sacrifices, the rebuilding of the temple, other things related to the observance of the Sabbaths and various things like that. I might ask you one final thing to notice. That stands in stark contrast to everything the New Testament stands for. It stands in great opposition to everything our Savior died to bring about. That Old Testament was imperfect. It had faults. Our Lord came to put in place a better covenant and a perfect one. It is unthinkable to think the Lord would have died at Calvary in the heinous, agonizing way that He did, carrying your sins in mind if there was someday going to be a return to an inferior system that would never require the Lord's death to start with. Consider some of these verses if you would. 
Galatians 3.24 points this, doesn't it, to the Old Testament and said that the law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It in fact pointed the way to the coming of the Messiah and the greatness of the kingdom that he would establish and the marvelous wonder of what would be enjoyed by the human family with forgiveness of sins available through him. You can also see from that same set of verses in 2 Corinthians 3 verses 1 and following that in fact the Old Testament was not a permanent thing. It was never intended to be. It was waning from the time God gave it. And in fact, we even find it prophesied of a time when it would be superseded, replaced by another covenant in Jeremiah 31, beginning also in verse 31. As far as the faults that that Old Testament had within it, notice that it did not offer justification, Acts 13, 38. Sins could not be forgiven, Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 4. To say all of that is thus to ask a very good question. Why would one ever want to return to the Old Testament? Why would one want to revisit the law of Moses and rely upon it to make one whole and right before God when it could never accomplish it itself? Perhaps finally near the bottom of that screen, the Lord, you see, fulfilled that old law. That means he filled it full. No part of that law relative to the coming of the Christ and the things the New Testament set forth was left undone. All of it was fulfilled. Jesus said in Matthew five seventeen and 18, as well as Luke 24, verse 44, the statement that all that is written in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the writings concerning me hath been fulfilled. That thus closes the timeline on the character of the fulfillment of those matters, doesn't it? And that leads us then full circle near the bottom to say that it was abolished. To quote Paul in Ephesians 2.15, nailed to the cross and taken out of the way, Colossians 2.14. And so today you and I live not beneath the law of Moses and not in a position to yet look forward to it again, but rather to understand the perpetual character of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In closing the lesson today, what should we then say in fairness about the tribulation? Though premillennialism claims much about it, the claims are sensational, fanciful, full of details from the figments of men's imaginations. The Bible doesn't support it. It doesn't teach it. Thus, there is to be no tribulation. When the Lord comes back the next time, this world's going to be burned up. Second Peter 3, verses 10 and 11. And on that occasion, as a result of its destruction, there should be no ongoing life here. But rather, at that point, we shall appreciate the grandeur of the judgment taking place with eternity hanging before us. The abode at that time will not be here on this earth. It will be heaven on the one hand or hell on the other. Even Hades will be emptied, Revelation 20, verses 11 and following. And so it is that event to which we turn our attention. Are you ready for that event? Don't place confidence in any tribulation. There's not going to be seven years to turn your life around. You won't have that opportunity to suddenly obey the gospel you never obeyed before or to come to find a pleasing favor before God. Once you and I have passed from this life and death or once the Lord returns, as we understand it there, things will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. We need to be ready when He comes. There will be no time to get ready. Prepare to meet thy God. Are you prepared today? 
Prove all things and hold to that which is good, we learn in 1 Thessalonians 5.21. Are you holding to that which is good? Base your life not on men's fanciful premillennialistic claims. Base your life, and may I do the same on the teaching of the Word of God. You need to be a Christian. You need to be that person who has given control of your life to the Master, the one who died for you. Believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Repent of the sins in your life as commissioned and commanded in Luke 13.5. Confess His name in the hearing of others so that they might appreciate the testimony of your heart and life that you are making a commitment to the Christ as that eunuch did in Acts the 8th chapter. Then be baptized. There will be one more than happy to assist you in your baptism today because in that baptism you contact the blood of Jesus and in that contact He washes your sins away. You can be whole and clean like a newborn baby. If today you haven't done that, don't delay any longer. If you know right from wrong and you know that the Lord died for you, you need to respond. You've heard the gospel invitation and God's calling you by it. If though you've become a Christian but you no longer are true to that calling, that commitment you professed in confession, come back to your first love. It is an event of great rejoicing when one who has gone astray comes back home. We'd be happy to pray with you. It would be our honor and our joy, and your life could be set back on the pathway of rightness. If we could be assistance in either one of these ways today, won't you let us do that while together we stand and while we sing?